Good morning, everyone. They're like, wait, we're supposed to be in Matthew. (laughs) We are going to take a break from Matthew to go over this passage today. I think it would be a, it's a good passage for us to reflect on in light of the new year and uh, a good passage for us to apply to our hearts and our lives. As we face a new year. So, what would you consider to be a great year? What would you consider to be a great year? Stay healthy uh, or get healthy. Uh, Lose so many pounds. Run so many miles. uh, Your retirement investments to grow. To double. Your kids make good grades. Uh, You get a promotion at work. You get married if you're single. You stay married if you're married. Your favorite sports team wins a championship. You come into a lot of extra money. You make a lot of friends. You keep your friends. You have no major problems in your life. That would be a great year. I believe the Bible shows us what a great year looks like. It was the first year of the church. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came on the believers. And it was amazing. It was an amazing first year. Something we should all seek to emulate in our upcoming new year. We want to look like this church. We want our lives to look like this church. Now, I admit that this passage is descriptive, not prescriptive. What do I mean by that? Descriptive means that it describes the events that happened during the beginning of the church at Pentecost. No, we're not going to emulate speaking in tongues in several different languages. However, the heart of the message and the heart of the people and their desire and their devotion and their heart attitudes towards the Lord is something to emulate. So this passage is one of those passages that gives us a beautiful glimpse of what a Christian's life should look like and what a church, a healthy church, should look like. So I think it's one that we should reflect on. And it's one that would help set our minds for the new year. Me as a pastor, one of my goals for the new year is to make disciples, to make more disciples, and to help us be better disciple makers. That's kind of our goal for the new year. One of the reasons why we're doing the biblical counseling class is because biblical counseling is ultimately making disciples, and we want to make disciples. So we want this church to do that and to grow. And I thought no better way and no better place to start is to look at this passage that shows us what making disciples looks like. What do disciples of Jesus look like? So today, we're going to examine three features of the early church we should all seek to emulate this year at Grace Bible Church of Tampa. The three primary features we will examine are the church's humble awareness, the church's bold exhortation, and the church's united devotion. 
United Devotion. Let's look at it. Start with number one, the humble awareness of the church. The humble awareness of the church. Look in verse 37. Now, when they had heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? We see here the very first feature of this early church was they had a humble awareness and it occurred when the gospel was proclaimed. The apostle Peter had stood up. Remember the tongues of fire had come down and they had begun to speak in other languages and people from all of the area, Jews had come from all over and had started to hear in their own hometown language these men speaking and they saw it as a miracle. And the Spirit had come, just like Jesus had said He would come. And so Peter stands up and he speaks a beautiful sermon. Arguably one of the greatest sermons ever preached. One of those sermons that talked about the glory of Christ. And all the promises that God had made about the Messiah coming. And then Jesus being the fulfillment of that. And showing the gospel. So what created this humble awareness? It was the gospel. It was who Christ was. It was who God, what God had done in Christ humbled the people. And a humble awareness occurs when the gospel is proclaimed. Notice in verses in 14 through 36, there's that sermon that Peter was talking about. The sermon included all the essentials of the gospel. But not only did the humble awareness occur when the gospel is proclaimed, it also occurred, it occurs when the Spirit works. Notice it states, they were pierced to the heart. They were pierced to the heart. What makes a, a God-honoring church? It's a church where the Spirit of God is working in the hearts of the people. That is crucial. That is very important. See, There is such thing as dead orthodoxy. It's the idea of having lots and lots of knowledge, but no heart change. We need the Spirit of God to work in our church. We do. Now you're saying, well, Pastor Mike, you're sounding awfully charismatic here. No. This is the true work of God. When the work of God, the Spirit of God, works in our hearts and breaks us and humbles us, and shows us our need of God. This is what a good, God-honoring church looks like. Now, beloved, isn't that what you want in your life? I want the Spirit of God to work in my heart, and work in your heart, and convict you of sin, and show you where you need Him. Yes? That's what we need. We need to be pierced to the heart. We need a humble awareness of our sin and our need of a Savior. This, beloved, is what we need in a church. More than anything else, we need the Spirit of God to work in us. Now, many of you know all about these uh, the, the, the Pentecostal and the Word of Faith movements where they call on the Spirit to come and they say, Spirit, come, and Spirit, come, and they're, they're wanting some kind of miraculous experience. But do you know what the greatest work of the Holy Spirit is? You want to know what it is? It's the conversion of souls. It's showing us our need, our utter inability within ourselves 
to get right with God. That we are desperate in need of Christ. That's what we need in this church. We need it all year long, don't we? We need it every single day. We need the Spirit to pierce our hearts. Just like He pierced these people. These Jewish people did not know, did not believe. They had come and they did not accept the Messiah. They didn't know about Him completely. And many of them had rejected Him. But the Spirit worked in their heart and took people that had rejected Him and made them believers in Him. How does that happen? It's the miraculous work of the piercing of God, of their hearts. That's what we need. They were pierced to the heart. And again, it's not just hearing truth and having an intellectual, I got it, I'm smart, I'm intelligent. I need this changed. My soul to be changed. You need that too. You need it every day, all the time. You need the Spirit to work in your lives, beloved. Jesus had said this was going to happen. This is what distinguishes the church from before. This is what distinguishes the new covenant from the old covenant. In John 16... Five, Jesus said, but now I'm going to him, the father who sent me and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I said these things, your sorrow has filled your heart. They wanted Jesus to stay, right? But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, who's that? The spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him, the spirit to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. This is the work of the Spirit. He opens the eyes of the blind. He changes the hearts of people. He convicts the world. We need the Holy Spirit to work in our lives and in this church. This drives me to my knees. How about you? Oh God, work in us this year. Work in me. You know, we make all these resolutions. I'm going to be holy this year. I'm going to read all my Bible. I'm going to read the whole Bible in one year. I'm going to do this and this and this and this and this. We make all these resolutions. But do you know ultimately the only one that's going to cause these things to happen is the Spirit of God working in our lives? For apart from me, you can do? We need the Spirit, don't we? Pastor Mike, you sound like a crazy charismatic. But I need the Spirit. I need Him in you. I can preach a thousand sermons and it will fall on deaf ears if the Spirit of God does not take the message and transform your heart. Oh God, work in us. That's my prayer this year. Work in me. Last time I I preached this sermon was six years ago. Six years ago, I preached the same sermon at about the same time. It just in the providence, I was going through Acts at that time. And I had a son, 
I still have the son, praise God. <laughs> Luke was six years younger, so six years old. And I preached this sermon, I said, We need to be a praying church. We need to be a praying church. Do you remember, beloved, all y'all that were here during that time? You know what happened? Luke had an aneurysm that week that was about to explode. And all of us ended up at the hospital at Tampa General praying together like I've never heard us pray before. Do we really want what we pray for and ask for? I do. That was some of the sweetest fellowship and prayer time I've ever seen in my entire life from Grace Bible. I want the Spirit of God to work in us. I want Him to work in your life. No matter what that means. We need a humble awareness of who we are and what we need, right? Notice also, humble awareness occurs when personal responsibility is realized. What do they say? Brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? They were confronted with their sin and their own personal responsibility in the death of Jesus. This brings us to a crucial point in salvation and conversion. Salvation is the deliverance from the power and penalty of sin. It happens when the individual, each individual, recognizes they are personally responsible for the death of Jesus. They recognize God sent His Son to die on a cross for them specifically. Individually and personally. They recognize God used godless men to accomplish this great work for them personally. And it causes an awareness. Oh, I did this. I'm responsible. What shall we do? Yes, in the providence of God, God killed His Son. But the reason why He killed His Son was why? Because of my sin. My sin. Every single person must come to this awareness and be pierced to the heart with the fact that you are responsible for Jesus' death. It was your own personal sin that held Him there on the cross. If it is not your personal sin, then your sin is not paid for. I'm responsible for his death. And everybody who has repented and believed, he died for you. If you have not turned from your sin and trusted in you, trusting in that truth, that fact, that person and work, It's not some generic work of God out there that's some mystical thing. It's a fact. It's a truth. It's a reality on an individual personal basis you must come to awareness of. And, And beloved, I don't think that this goes away. I am acutely aware 
of my responsibility in the, for the death of Christ every day. Every day. Every time I sin, I, there's conviction that comes. And I'm reminded it was that sin that he had to die for. Do you see how this changes everything? When we really see that it was my sin that held him there. My life's changed. It's different. I live different. I act different. Every single person in this room must come to this awareness and must be pierced to the heart with this truth. We have many churches in this world. We have many, many people who say they're Christians. But very few understand this key doctrine, this key truth. Substitutionary atonement. We killed Jesus. Our sin held Him there. And we're worthy of judgment. We live unholy, ungrateful lives. And when the Spirit convicts us, we understand and recognize that it was our sin that killed Him. But here's the great news. Jesus died for our rejection and our unbelief. Jesus died for our wretched condition. And we must acknowledge our sin. Humbly be aware that we did it. And we must repent and believe in Him. Friends, this humble awareness of our need is something we all should want in our church all the time. This, this should make us humble people, right? Do you understand that Christians should be the most humble people in all the world? We should. It shouldn't, we should walk around in complete humility all the time. Because we're acutely aware of our sin and what God did for us. And yet somehow... Professing Christians are often the most prideful people. I think that's the enemy. I think it's the enemy. Christians should be the easiest people to live around. We should be, shouldn't we? Why should we be the easiest? Because we're humble. We should be the greatest employees. We really should. Every boss should say, man, I want ten of them. Give me ten Christians. Please, give me ten Christians. You know what they say instead? I don't want a single Christian. Something's wrong. We're not emulating the early church. We don't look this humble awareness, do we? Humble awareness comes when we recognize that it was our sin. That is the reason Jesus died. We want broken people that rejoice in what Christ has done for us. At peace. Not walking around moping, but satisfied with Christ. Knowing He's enough. We don't need people 
who seek to make an excuse for their sin. Instead, we seek to own our sin, don't we? Yep, that was me. If we're really humbly aware of who we really offended in our sin and what it cost Christ, then we're going to be the first to confess sin, aren't we? We're going to be the first to say, hey, I did it, I'm wrong. But what is it about us? We still have this propensity to make an excuse and say, but but it was because of this. And if you wouldn't have done this, then it's okay. Humble awareness sees Christ for who it is and we say, I did it. That's what we need for a church, right? That's what I want from Grace Bible. I don't care how big we are. I just want people that do this. And I admit that this kind of humble awareness is not going to fill this place to overflowing probably. You know why? Because it's a work of God. And why does the way that leads to destruction many go that way? But we need a humble awareness of our sin, don't we? Second, we need bold exhortation. If you can't see, I'm, I'm doing that now. By the grace of God, I'm, I'm giving it to you. Just like Peter did. And I'm not going to change by the grace of God. Guess what? Next week, you're going to hear it again. And every Sunday, I'm going to do the next verse. And the next verse is going to do the same thing, isn't it? And tonight... When we continue on in Zechariah, guess what? He's going to preach the truth again. Next man up. And Wednesday night, next man up. Bold exhortation, right? Because if not, we don't look like a biblical church. Look at it. Bold exhortation. Peter said in verse 38 to them, Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. As many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. And with many other words, He solemnly testified and kept exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. The early church was known for bold preaching, bold exhortation. Amazingly, it came from some very common fishermen. It, it came from some men that some 44 days roughly previously were timid. And ran from their Savior's side. The same guy that preached this amazing sermon is making this amazing truths proclaimed was also the one that denied Jesus three times just 44 days earlier. What changes that man? Answer, the same Holy Spirit that was piercing the heart was also transforming and giving the boldness and courage to the man who is preaching the truth. The Spirit of God was emboldening him. And he was exhorting with no fear of man at all. That's what I want to do. 
That's what we need to do. Exhort with boldness, courage, unashamedly, with no fear of man. That's what we should emulate, shouldn't we? Twelve, eleven, add one, then Paul thirteen. Ordinary men, spirit filled, spirit controlled, Holy Spirit working. This is what a biblical church looks like. People who are humbly aware of their need of God and their preachers who boldly proclaim the way of salvation is through faith alone in Christ alone. Notice the characteristics of the bold exhortation. Bold exhortation includes a a call for personal repentance and faith. Again, repent. Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. This means, simple, turn from sin. Each of you, turn from sin. Obey the Lord's command to be baptized. Repent, believe, and automatically baptism will what? Happen out of obedience. Remember, Jesus' commission, the Great Commission. You remember Matthew 28? In Matthew 28, it states, Jesus said to the disciples... All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. Main command. Make followers. Make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them. What does a disciple look like? It's somebody that's being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so what does Peter say immediately? At Pentecost, repent and be baptized. Whose authority? Christ's authority. He speaks and says, do it. Turn. Baptism, beloved, is the beginning act of obedience of for Jesus' disciples. Baptism does not save a person, but baptism is so associated with a converted and believing heart that it's natural. It is the automatic And forgiveness of sins comes as someone has turned from Christ and is believing in Him and therefore obeying Him. Forgiveness of sins. This faith in Jesus is seen in their baptism. It is their baptism that they formally reveal their identification with Christ. When we're baptized, why do we get baptized? We get baptized out of obedience. Out of obedience to Christ. To do what He says to do. And we also get baptized to identify with Christ. We say, hey, that's me. I died with Him. I rose with Him. Christ died for me. I'm with Him. I'm His. That's why we get baptized. Anybody that has turned from their sins and trusts in Him is baptized. It just doesn't work the other way around. You don't get baptized and then believe in Him. How can you be baptized and obey the Lord before you know the Lord? You can't. 
You have to believe. I rose with Him. I'm in Christ. My old life is dead. My new life is in Christ. So the bold exhortation calls for personal response and faith to Jesus alone. Second, the bold exhortation includes a call for obedience to the Lord. Be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then third, bold exhortation includes a solemn and continual call for faith in Christ. This faith in Christ is the only place forgiveness is found. Everybody agrees with that, right? I saw a post even this week. Somebody said, you know, forgiveness only doesn't mean that you just excuse sin. That's exactly right. I think it was a Tozer quote. Yeah, it's not that you make an excuse for sin, that you excuse it or just not even think about it. No, every sin has a consequence, doesn't it? It has a major consequence. Every sin, every sin you've ever had, every sin you've ever done, every sin you've ever thought has a consequence. One, it's either paid for by Christ on the cross or it's paid for by you in eternal hell. That's an amazing thought. Forgiveness came because of judgment. And there is no forgiveness for sin outside Christ, right? None. How exclusive is the gospel? Oh, it is extremely exclusive. There is no other way to be forgiven for sin. None. Yes, a human can say, I'm not going to hold it against you anymore. But ultimately, in eternity, that doesn't matter at all. Listen, in a thousand years, it's not going to matter whether or not your father forgave you or not, your earthly father. That ain't going to matter one hill of beans. If your relationships that you have a a problem with, that ain't going to matter one bit if they don't forgive you in a thousand years from now. In a thousand years from now, if you don't have forgiveness in Christ and by trusting and believing in Him, guess what? It's going to be a sad place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and you will be part of it. You say, man, Pastor Mike, you're being intense today. You're talking about hell. Hopefully, you're being pierced to the heart and you go, what shall we do? Because if so, i got good news for you. Jesus Christ came into the world to die, to pay for sin. And if you repent and believe in Him, your sins will be forgiven too. Turn from your sins and trust in Christ. You need Him. I need Him. Notice, this is exactly what Peter did. With many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, be saved from this perverse generation. Because where was this perverse generation headed? Hell. Judgment. The vast majority of them had rejected their Messiah. The vast majority of them were facing a judgment far greater than anything this world could bring upon them. From a holy and just God, too. So what is our solution? Be saved. Be delivered from this perverse generation. And where is that salvation found? 
and the finished work of Jesus Christ and the one that loves me that came into the world and died for sinners like me and you. Be saved from this perverse generation too. Trust in Christ. You need Him. You say, some of you in the room here, you're saying, well, I'm already a believer. Why are you telling me this again, Pastor Mike? Isn't the church for the church? Isn't Sunday morning for the church? I cannot hear the gospel message enough. Can you? If you don't see this as the greatest news in all the world and you can't rejoice in this, then you still have, you have forgotten how sinful your sin is. I need Christ. You need Him. Everybody in here, be saved from this perverse generation. This is who and what they preached. We must courageously call people out of their sinful lifestyles. Yep, that means repent, turn from it. We're not going to make excuses for it. We're not going to say, well, you were born that way. You know what? We were all born to sin. (laughs) We were born dead in sin. And that gives us absolutely no excuse when we stand before a holy God. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. We must boldly exhort them to repent and believe in Christ. To identify with Him. To be baptized and begin a life of obedience with Him. Filled with the Holy Spirit. With the Spirit working. And again, we must understand that this only happens by who? The Spirit of God. Only those... That he calls to himself. See, I just gave a general call to everybody here. Repent and believe in him. But the only ones that are going to get it are the ones that he has called. Effectually worked in. Do you understand that? You could be sitting here hearing this message and it go in one ear and out the other. And totally miss it. And it would be because the Spirit of God has not worked in your heart yet. And it is my prayer, and it should be your prayer. Oh, Spirit, work in the hearts of the people. Change hearts. Oh, God, change hearts in Christ's Bible Church today, right? That's what we need. God, please work here. Work in me. Work in our family members that don't know you. We trust you, Lord. And we want to produce obedience. And obedience is an automatic from faith. It's an automatic for, from people that believe in Christ. If your heart's been converted and you've been pierced to the heart and you're aware of your need and you trust and you repent in Him, obedience happens. How do I know? Well, because this is what the Bible says. Obedience is a natural automatic result of those who believe. The Apostle Paul speaks of it. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for His namesake. Where does obedience come from? 
comes from faith. Faith produces obedience. It's an automatic. That's what we're about. We're here to help you trust in Him so you will then obey Him. Is there such thing as a Christian who does not obey Jesus? Answer, no. There's no such thing as that. That's not a Christian. You say, Mike, you're preaching lordship salvation again. No, I'm preaching salvation. This is insanity that is called lordship salvation. Because it's just salvation. Salvation is deliverance from the power and penalty of sin. But if you don't obey, then there's no... You still are in bondage to sin. I always got a kick out of this at seminary. The professors used to say, why do we call it Lordship Salvation? And their president was John MacArthur, you know, the whole thing. The, the professors were like, this is just salvation. What are we talking about? You're right. Didn't have to be relabeled. It's just deliverance. You're either delivered and you obey, or you're not delivered. You say, well, I don't obey very well. Yeah. And what does God do to children that don't obey? He disciplines them because He loves them. And He causes them to come to Him. And no, our obedience is not perfect, right? Is our obedience perfect? But we are made right through faith in Christ. We're declared right. And then through faith in Him, He sanctifies us and makes us look like His Son. Oh, friends, if you're a Christian that doesn't obey, there's hope in the gospel. Turn to Christ. Be aware of your sin. Confess it. Ask Him to change you. For it is the Holy Spirit that indwells you. How about this for fruit of the Spirit, right? Everybody's wanting an experience and speaking tongues. How about this? Just be holy as He is holy. We need Christ, don't we? Bold exhortation, humble awareness, and finally, united devotion. United devotion. Look at verse 41. So then those who had received His word were baptized, they obeyed, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Way to go, Spirit. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Let's stop there. In this section, this whole section from 41 to 47... The key characteristic of the early church was unity. Unity. We see this in the whole passage. Unity. No, it wasn't the charismatic gifts, believe it or not. Those were great things. There were signs and wonders being taken place by the apostles. But the key 
point, the key characteristic of an early church, of the early church, was unity. And this whole thing is talked about throughout it. You see it numerous times. There were added about 3,000 souls. They, that is the 3,000 souls, they were continually devoting themselves. Everyone, everyone, not some, not the majority, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Everyone. And all those who had believed were together. All those, all those who had believed were together, all those were together. Did you catch that? All those? You say, why are you making such a big... This is unity. They come together. They're all together. And had all things in common? No way. I know, I know. Some would say, this is communism. Garbage. It's not communism. Communism is... And it's not socialism either. No way. It's not government enforced. It's heart produced. Did you hear the difference? Not government enforced, but heart produced. Spirit produced. That only comes by the divine act of God. And they became sell, they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all. As anyone might have need. Again, need. And people of their own free will by the Spirit working in them again. Because they had been delivered from the power and penalty of sin, did what? Helped each other. They helped it. Was it a government official over the top going, you need to be unified, we need to come together, and I'm going to force you to give to your brother? No. This is heart-produced love. The world can't engineer this. This is spirit-produced unity. It only comes from an acute awareness, a humble awareness of our sin and our need of a Savior. It only comes when the Spirit of God transforms our hearts and shows us just how much God loves us. For when we understand how much God loves us, to give to others is nothing to us, is it? It's nothing. You want to stay with me? Fine. Listen, I, I don't. I, I, I say some of these things on. I, I, I know I got to be careful. Listen, I'm I'm a wretched sinner, and y'all understand that. And I'm still a work in progress, and God's working. But I, I walked. I was walking yesterday into Winn Dixie, and I was thinking to myself. I saw this family, this one lady and her two kids, and they had a blanket, and they were just sitting outside. When Dixie, they were laying there, probably eight and ten-year-old girls, they were laying there with a blanket over them, and their mom was sitting there, and I was thinking to myself, why are you here? I mean, why are you, this is like, it's nasty outside, You're, you, why are you like this? And I walked in, and I had my cart, and I'm like, ah. This lady, what is she doing here? Why isn't she at a house? Isn't she at home? And I kept going and it harassed me the whole time. I was, yes, you been here? Harassed me the whole time as I was doing this. I was getting my grocery. I walked out and I said, 
Father, she's okay, she's okay. And I looked over and I saw her again. I'm like, no, what are you doing here? Turned my cart around and walked over to her. And she said, she didn't ask for anything. She wasn't wanting anything from me. She wasn't begging for anything. I said, why are you here? And she couldn't speak English, but her two daughters told me, well, we, 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 we live in Bradenton. They try and translate through her mom, and we just can't get home. We have to wait. I said, so you want a ride? I'll take you home. She said, well, we would take an Uber, but it's 60 bucks. I said, hold on one second. And I walked back in, got $80 and brought it to him and gave it to her. Go home. I hope you get home safely. <gasps> you gave them money. Oh, no. They might have misused it. Beloved, come on. Did Christ see me in my desperate state? Did he put conditions on me? No, he just died for me. God approached this wicked sinner and said, you're my son. I adopt you. I think we should be the most loving and kind and gracious people on the planet. I know, I know. So you're in the social gospel. No. The government fails miserably at that. They just want to inflict judgment on people and rule over them harshly. But we love people, don't we? And we want to point them to the gospel. And I gave two tracts to the girls and I said, Hey, you got to make sure you read this to your mommy, okay? Christ Jesus came into the world to die for sinners like us. We should come together and be unified in our devotion to God and the people. That's what we're about, right? That's what I want for Grace Bible Church. I think that's a good goal. What do you think? Three thousand people going in the same direction with the same purpose. I just want two hundred of us. Seeking God, serving one another, and making disciples. So, beloved, is this possible? Is it possible? I believe it is. I believe it is. Because I believe the same Spirit that was working in that day is working today. And I believe He can work in us. For the Apostle Paul would not say in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 to 3, Therefore I, prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another, in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. See? See, beloved? In the epistles, he turns around and what? Tells them to do this to these churches that are Gentile churches, later have that same unity. Produce that same love. 
So what were they united in? They were united in their devotion to the gospel, right? We saw that. In verse 41, Acts 2, 41, So then those who had received the word, received the word, were baptized. In other words, those who embraced the gospel were baptized. They received this word, Peter's sermon from Acts 2. He talked about Jesus, and i got to get through this. So, And then second, they were united in their devotion to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. Look at verse 42. I love this verse. This is a verse everybody should have memorized. Great truth. Things to think on. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is a profound verse. Again, 3,000 new Jewish converts were continually attaching themselves to the apostles' teaching. To a group of very ordinary men and their teaching. To a group of men led by three fishermen. To a group of men who had previously denied him. To a group of men who were just common, untrained, uneducated Galileans. They were devoted to these guys' teaching. Why? Because the Spirit of God was working in them. And He was revealing the great truth of God's gospel and how it would go out to all the world. Starting with the Jew first, and then Gentile. They understood, these apostles understood Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. You know, I calculated it this week. Do you understand that the apostles were with Jesus for roughly 24 hours a day for three and a half years? Now they slept. We'd assume they slept. So just round it down to 16. They got eight hours sleep. I doubt, but let's say they got eight hours sleep. For three and a half years. Do you understand what that means? They were with Jesus for 20,000 hours. Whoa! Think for a second what it would be like to hang out with Jesus, the God-man incarnate, for 20,000 hours. That's a lot better than seminary, I promise. 20,000 hours with the incarnate God. I don't know about you, but I would have been one of those sitting right at their feet saying, tell me what he said. On top of that, we know that the Apostle Paul, right, in Galatians 1, 12, it says that he wasn't taught by men, he wasn't taught by those men, but God, Jesus, the Lord, divinely gave him revelation of all these truths. And he was in Arabia for roughly three years, so maybe he had the same amount of time getting revelation about these truths. So we start reading these epistles and we go, wow, this explains a lot, doesn't it? Just a side note here, just and I know, y'all, this is good, hang in there. One hour a week at church. It's going to be a long time before you hit 20,000 hours. Two hours at church, still a long time. Three hours at church, still a long time. Something's got to change, right? I think we need to be in the Word more. What do you think? How many of you have on your phone one of those things that shows screen time? 
That's one of the most convicting things in the whole planet. Shows you how much your screen time was every week. And I know some of you might say, well, I'll just use a different screen. Then it kind of doesn't add them together. I got that screen, the big screen, and the iPad, and the held home, and the iPad. Oh, man, I only got eight hours on that screen. I think we need Bible time. Bible time. This year, we're doing a, a read through the Bible, or it's a different reading plan than before. I like to do it different every year. This year, we're going to do Paul's epistles. We're going to go deeper. And there's, there's 13 epistles, and I'm going to do an epistle every month. And so what we'll do is we'll read that epistle every day. We'll work through that, and we'll read it over and 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 over again for a whole month. So there's 13, but Colossians can go with Philemon. So you got 12. And so we're going to go through that. But then also there's supplemental reading. I thought, man, I really want to know. I really want to know the 12 minor apostles, uh, prophets. Because they get so missed, right? So I'm reading Obadiah for the whole month of January. Obadiah? You're going to read Obadiah? Yeah, Obadiah. And every month I'm going to read an epistle or epistle and then a, one of the minor prophets every day, all the time. So I can go deeper and I can understand it because I'm going to, I want to know the apostles' teaching. I want to know how the Bible works. So if you're interested, I'll hand these out in the back, the way out. And then I'm going to post devotions at a blog spot that I started. Finally, I want you to see they were united in their devotion to biblical fellowship. We see that, to fellowship. You say, well, Mike, you didn't finish the passage. Well, the passage really is a summary of biblical fellowship. In verse 43 to 47, what does biblical fellowship look like? Listen, koinonia, fellowship, participating together in the gospel. Unity and participation in the gospel. That's what real biblical fellowship is. Biblical fellowship is not just getting together and playing some games. Now that's fun. But biblical fellowship is united together in the participation of the gospel. Okay, I'm going to shock you here. Do you understand, listen closely, do you understand that when you sing on Sunday morning, your biblical fellowship, you're doing biblical fellowship? No. Yeah, you're participating in the gospel together, and we are together singing. That's why when I walk to the back, I know I love you guys in the back. I know it's harder to sing in the back because you hear your voice and nobody. Come on, y'all sing too, please. Let's participate together in the gospel. I know it's really hard back there because I've been back there and I've walked back there, and it's hard. Up here, you kind of get drowned out. You like that, don't you? I like it. I can sing real loud and nobody can hear me. It's really good. You say, well, I don't have a good voice. If you exalt the name of Christ, you praise Him, that's a good thing. Let's sing. It says it, right? This is what biblical fellowship is. Let's read and we'll close with this. This is biblical fellowship. 
everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who were, who had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all. As anyone might have need. Day by day, continually with one mind in the temple. Breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's biblical fellowship. It's eating together. It's praying together. It's worshiping together. It's participating in the gospel and activities together. Sacrificing for one another. Seeking to evangelize together. Doing all this with joy and genuineness of heart. Not forced, but joyfully. But most of all, biblical fellowship is worship. It's worship. It's exalting the God who came into the world to die to pay for us, rose from the dead, and is now in heaven, and one day he will return. That is biblical fellowship. When we participate together in that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the confrontation that it does to our souls. The conviction that comes because of the Spirit. The recognition of our our cold-heartedness at times, Lord. What shall we do? We shall turn to you. The one who sent his Son into the world to die to pay for us. What shall we do? We will repent and believe in you. What shall we do? We will continue daily to repent and turn to you. And then, Lord, we will obey you. We will be unified in our devotion to you. We will worship you. We will acknowledge you. We will seek you. We will read your word. We will meditate on your word. We will share your word. We will evangelize. We will glorify you. Because you are Lord, and you are God, and you are our Savior, and we love you. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.